You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Black feminist historian Dr. Treva B. Lindsay, author of America Goddamn, Violence, Black Women, and the Struggle for Justice. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. So we have to be unwavering in our commitment to principles of justice and freedom and be harbingers of hope. It's what can feel like regression that's happening. It's like, okay, there is, right? I'm thinking about in the country right now, we've had these incredible moments of seeing a show like Pose on television with so many trans black and brown actors that you had Fern Cox on the cover of Time. You had a really wonderful documentary um, disclosure about trans representation and some really positive steps made forward with regards to trans healthcare. And right now we're seeing all of these bills pop up across states criminalizing trans youth. And it is important for us to recognize in that moment, part of that backlash is because certain progress was being made, because we were starting to question gender and its fixity and the ways that transphobia operates, because people were becoming aware of how vulnerable trans people are in our world to violence. And so, of course, we see a response to that, which means we have to retool and keep fighting. That's that's the charge, right? The struggle is, at this point, still an unending one, but it doesn't mean that along the way, there's certain victories haven't amassed that give us hope to propel us forward and be ready when the next attack on freedoms, on rights, on justice emerges, because it will, um, right? We're, we're pushing in ways that are uncomfortable because we're disrupting the center, we're disrupting the default, we're disrupting power. And power is not just gonna concede because we're demanding it. So it is, for me, this is a lifelong thing. And I think of it as ancestor work that I one day will be someone's ancestor. And I want them to be proud of the work that we did to, to give them a world that's a little better of an inheritance than the world that I was born into. And I think that is how we mark progress in, in more nuanced ways, right? In more honest ways that doesn't need it to be a straight line towards freedom, but more of a journey where there are wins and losses, setbacks, and victories. One of our missions here is one generation inspiring another. And I definitely feel that. And it goes both ways, you know. So, mm-hmm. it's, so I, and you know that as a teacher, the joys of teaching is you start the teaching process. And then you get to a point where they're teaching you and there's a great oh. feedback. You know, we were doing an interview the other day with the, someone who's a specialist in ancient Japan. And then the student did her interpretation and she says, oh, well, that reminds me of this song by Childish Gambino. And it was just, you would not even think that they belong mm. in the same conversation. But it's those <laughs> moments, right? It's like, oh, yes. Like what is pulling in? I mean, I'm always learning from my students and I say I'm facilitating at best and then we're really learning together and I can teach the same material their classes that I've taught for like over a decade at this point and each time is different because it's a different set of students and so it's different knowledges all around that are bringing their experiences and their interpretations and their reading of a text or of looking at a piece of art or listening to a song and bringing that to the fore and I know I'm grow because I am a teacher and I'm not in any way ashamed of the fact that I feel like sometimes 
I'm getting more from my students than they're getting from me because they're they're just there's 30 plus of them usually in a class and they have so many ideas and they're so thoughtful but they're also really to hear what I'm presenting to them and so as you said it's it is generation to generation is intergenerational that we make the kind of substantive changes and impact that we want in the world that you know, I hate when we get into these generational clashes. I mean, they're fun on Twitter for little moments or you weren't there when from an older generation or, you know, younger generation telling us about some old technology or something. But at the end of the day, when we realize that we have so much that we can learn from one another and that it only makes our basket of tools bigger when we work with each other and think about this as an ongoing learning space, both in the classroom or in organizing spaces or whatever institution or organization that you're in. If you think about that collaborative approach to it across generations, I think we're far better off than any kind of siloed or even adversarial dynamic. And you've been great for reaching out beyond academia through your journalism. And you, do you consider that an extension of your teaching? Absolutely. I think about this in two ways. One, when I wrote my first book and, and, and a lot of my writing prior to that is pretty much for an academic audience. There's certainly people who picked up color no more who are not in academia and I will forever be grateful for that. But it is a book that is deeply kind of tethered to an academic book model. And, you know, I was disheartened because there are people in my family with various levels of education. So picking up that book might've felt very intimidated or very disconnected to this thing that because of who they were, I was able to write. And so I wanted to find a way to still be as thoughtful, as engaged, as incisive as my analysis, but to cultivate a voice that really connected with the communities that I feel accountable to. I don't feel accountable to the academy. I feel accountable to marginalized people. So if I'm gonna create a project I want one that people sit with and engage and can really parse through. And not that it's not smart or you might have to do work to do it, but that it feels like I'm talking with you as opposed to at you or even worse down to you, which is sometimes unfortunately what academics can have a tendency to do. And so I was very intentional with America Goddamn and a lot of the public writing that came out before this to cultivate that voice and to bring in the personal. And I thought with America Goddamn, including some of my own experiences with violence and how I'm witnessing these instances would also help connect to readers in specific ways that it's less of a distance. And I'm not objective in this. I don't pretend to be objective about what's happening. I usually do commentary or op-eds. And when I've been asked to be objective, like I recently wrote a piece for, I did a piece about abort the history of abortion and than one for high schoolers, right? But it had to be objective and neutral, right? Couldn't tip my hand as to where I stood in the battle on reproductive justice. And even in that, it was, that was probably one of the hardest things for me to do because right now I see so many attacks on access to abortion care happening. And so I'm very impassioned about that. And I, I wanted to, but I'm glad as an educator that I had the skills to present the information and then I could write another piece about what it means that we're seeing reproductive care under attack in numerous ways, everything from maternal morbidity to access to abortion, all part of the same web of reproductive care and justice. And so 
that meant a lot to me. That one that my grandmother, where she's still alive, could read this project and feel deeply connected to it. But that the communities that I'm talking about, the families of the people and the loved ones of the people that I talk about in the book would feel seen and feel like they were being held warmly in what I was writing and what I was saying. And that's often my kind of ethical framework for writing in the way that I do. I'm completely for a clear language. If you're writing about people, it shouldn't be in language that they don't understand. It is supposed to be a mirror after all. And sometimes that means throwing away euphemisms or, or jargon that can just obscure, you know, hard facts. We have to be able to call something what it is and not mm-hmm. this embellished form, which sounds very elegant. And that's important, too. <laughs> yes. The art of writing. I love it. I love there's there's some jargon I can just sit with and marinate with. And I was like, look, this book has to be really like here it is. So even when their concepts, even that I feel might be feel jargony. I'm like, how do I break this down and make sure my reader stays with me? I don't ever want to lose my reader. I don't want to lose the communities that matter most in this analysis. And so how do you write for that? And for me, that usually meant like some of my writing process, like writing, I would talk, I would just record myself talking about a thing, get it transcribed, and then do some editing. Because what I realized is I usually talk to people in a way that is very, very it's very conversational. It's very dynamic. It's still thoughtful and engaged with kind of dense concepts or complicated concepts. But I'm like, you feel me? Like there are pauses, there are things that are in there. And so how do I make that translate into writing? And probably one of the best compliments I ever got from another a person who's a writer who's also a friend is when she was reading an earlier draft of the book was like, I heard you as I was reading this. And that meant a lot that she could hear because it was my voice coming to life for her. And that is some of how she connected to me because she knows how impassioned I am about this topic. She knows which I care about ending violence against everyone, but specifically black women and girls. And you could feel that in a different way. So it was a sensory experience, not just this literary experience with the text. Oh yeah, I think that's really the secret to powerful writing is it sounds like you it's not somebody else's voice Mm -mm. someone you're trying to be like it's you and you can feel it the passion comes across so how has black femininity been redefined in the past few years and is this I'll just tack on this part and is this you know region dependent or you know how do you think about it on a global or universal Mm. aspect Yeah, I think there are a lot of questions about Black femininity as we're thinking about gender, right? So there's a lot of, for me, I see conversations about expansiveness of what the Black feminine can be, a resistance to some of the longstanding stereotypes about Black women. And each of these stereotypes have kind of site-specific histories. You ask the strong Black woman, the mammy, these tropes that are recurring that we see. So people pushing back against that casting um, and the kind of defeminizing of Black women. And then you have other Black women who are like, femininity ain't doing it for me. (laughs) And I want to think more expansively about the ways that we show up in the world and what does patriarchy tell us about gender and therefore like how do we feel like we invest in our gender expression and how we show up in the world and so what I'm excited about across the world is that Black women I think are largely defending and Black people who identify um, with feminine 
expression are redefining femininity on their own terms and questioning femininity and interrogating its history and pushing it back against strictures around what that can mean. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited about these questions. And I know that it's a, they're risky because the proclamation that ain't I a woman, for instance, or this long history of masculinizing Black women has a very violent and harmful history. And even in that, Black women are still, many Black women are still skeptical of Black femininity as imposed, as opposed to a Black femininity or Black femininities that are authored and constructed through our own experiences, our own desires, and our own relationship to gender expression. It's a lot to take in. It's always evolving. And now there, I think there's positive and negatives to it. You wonder sometimes about, I'm talking about the kind of, it's like a trend or a fad for inclusion and diversity, which I think of course is important, but then sometimes you wonder if people are just like doing it to tick boxes as well. So what is your vision for that? Uh, you know, what are some like good examples of that? You don't want to make anything like that forced upon people where they just aren't taking it in. Yeah, so there's a lot of this push right now to say like, let's normalize, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, part of what is undergirding is that it's like, let's not criminalize or harm people who are engaging in the world in this way. But I think a lot of us are still interested in being subversive and being like, there's a way that when we say something is minoritized because of our society is hierarchical. So many of our societies are hierarchical and rest power in those who are seen as the mythic norm of white, male, cisgender, and whatever the dominant language is in, in the various spaces. And so minoritized means less than. And I think the reclamation of difference that's not hierarchized and the ability to find your folks and find your connections and find yourself in real ways that's not measured against this intractable center is what's important to me in terms of thinking about a more inclusive world. And so that can still be subversive, that can still be transgressive, that you're finding power in being that and that they're shifting things like people are, I, we're learning about, I'm still happily learning about what gender means to people and what this means in different societies, what that's meant historically in different places. And I want to know more about that, which gives more possibility to the way that we're thinking about things, but also still ties us to look, patriarchy is still an organizing logic. So that is why we see a disproportionate number of people who identify as women and people who are perceived as women harmed by violence because of patriarchy. And so I'm interested in the systems more than I'm interested in, right? The, the more kind of micro level, here's my identity. It's like, are you going to be killed, harmed, marginalized, dispossessed, or disenfranchised because of this material reality and this lived experience? And so what do we need to do in terms of these systems to ensure that you are not, right, more vulnerable because of that? If you don't perform according to the trope or the stereotype, it's right there. You haven't changed the bag. You've just changed who's in the room. And that is really 
where I think we should be moving at this point if we're talking about large scale inclusion, equity, et cetera, efforts, whatever people are calling it and identifying it. If it's not getting at that, then we're just replicating something and adding other numbers to it, right? Adding some numbers, padding the, <laughs> you know, padding the books, padding the stats. And I'm, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that kind of work. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.